For 20 years, Yaakov Avinu worked for Lovan. He became very, very successful. He increased in wealth his sheep, camels, and servants. He became a very, very wealthy man. Very shortly thereafter, the children of Lovan began saying, look at the wealth of Yaakov. Where did he take it from? He took it from our father. And they began writing on Lovan. And Yaakov recognized that Lovan no longer treated him the way he had till then. And Yaakov realized that it's time to leave. He told his wives, it's time to go. And they packed up in the dark of night. They snuck out. And it wasn't until a few days later that Lovan realized that his son-in-law, his daughters, and all of the camp had gone. And when he finds out about it, he sets out to chase them down. And the Pesach says that Hashem appeared to Lovan in a dream and said, Guard yourself, don't say a word to him. When Lovan gets there, he begins accusing Yaakov of stealing he begins making all types of accusation. And after a while, after proving that every word that Lovan has said is false, finally Yaakov says the words, avi, If it weren't for the God of my father, if it weren't for the merit of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, you would have sent me empty-handed. Es anyi, es my poverty, and the hard work of my hands, Ra elokim. Hashem save me because of the merit of my fathers, and because of the merit of my hard work that I've done with my hands. On this Pasuk, the Mezrach Jan says, Mikan Anlum from here we learn, Shezichus Melacha, that the merit of work, Omeda stands b'makom shein yochos avos lamod, that the merit of labor stands a person in better stead than even does the merit of the forefathers, because the reality is, that as much as the schus of us, of Avram and Yitzhak, saved Yaakov, even more effective was the merit of his hard work, of his labor. And Rabbeinu Machai, when quoting this, says, <clears throat> quotes the Gemara, Gadol Kapal, from here we see, it's greater one who benefits from the work of his hands, Yosemi Yerushimayim, even than one who is a Yerushimayim. And apparently, it's considered a major schus. Apparently, Yaakov Avinu was saved, kept his wealth, <clears throat> was allowed to walk out of there unscathed because of the merit of his hard labor, the merit of him being a shepherd. And I believe the obvious question to ask on this is, what kind of merit is there for being a laborer, for being a shepherd? What kind of value, what kind of schus? There are beasts of burden. An animal <clears throat> has a role in this world. An ox pulls the plow. The donkey carries the load. But that's not the greatness of man. That's not why Hashem created the heavens and the earth. That's not what we were put here for. Yet the Midrash seems to be telling us that the physical labor that Yaakov did, the fact that he was a shepherd, that's what stood him in better stead. That helped him even more than the schus of Avram and Yitzhak. And it sounds very, very difficult to understand. And I'd like to see if we could understand this chazal because I believe it shares with us a perspective that's extremely significant. And to do that, let's step away for a minute. The 20th century was a time of change. 
in the beginning of the century, it was a world that was still quite primitive. Horse-drawn wagons, basically man lived as he had for centuries before, and by the end of that century, you had man walking on the surface of the moon. You went to full-blown computers, to electricity, telephones, cars, airplanes, computers, internet. In about 100 years, civilization changed. Technology began blossoming, and the average man's life became so different in those 100 years that it's difficult to compare a person living in 1999 to a person living in 1899. In any case, Time magazine, towards the end of that century, were voting on what they called man of the century. They were going to have a major issue, and on this issue to mark the new era, they wanted to pick one man who had the greatest influence, the single most effective human being in terms of changing reality, who was the man who had the greatest impact on the 20th century. And their criteria was very simple. Simply, which man changed the world most? Unfortunately, they had a problem because the most obvious person was a gentleman named Adolf Hitler because the 20th century became a very different place because of that person. But if you put his picture on the front of Time magazine, it's not going to sell many issues. So they had to sort of change the rules a little bit. They made it who had the most positive influence. And the person they came up with was Albert Einstein. And the reality is that Albert Einstein had a tremendous effect on the 20th century. His theory of relativity and the atomic theory changed much of science and technology, certainly today, everything that we enjoy, much of it is built upon his contributions, and the reality is that he made a tremendous, tremendous, and brought advancement to the to civilization, and he made a tremendous contribution. Okay, that being said, let's ask ourselves the following question. <clears throat> Where do you think Albert Einstein is right now? Well, I'd like to share with you the unfortunate reality is that he's probably in Gehenna. And I'll explain to you why. Albert Einstein was Jewish. Albert Einstein, at a certain point, was seemingly a Balchuva. Even though his parents were not religious, he kept kosher, he kept Shabbos. And no matter how you slice it, he left this world an apikoris. His words, I do not believe in a personal God, and I have never denied this, But this is something that I've expressed clearly. Over and over he denied Hashem's involvement in the world. Over and over he denied the idea of Hashem being interested in what happens in the world. And according to any normal assessment, he's at best Poshe Yisrael, certainly in Apikoros. And even if you'll tell me he's a Tinoch Shanish, but listen, he didn't know, he didn't have an education. Again, it's quite debatable because he was religious for a while. He did keep kosher, albeit he was mocked by his parents. But the point is, clearly, over and over he said, I believe in Spinoza's God, who reveals himself in the orderly harmony of what exists, not in a God who concerns himself with the fates and actions of human beings. Ask a three-year-old, where is Hashem? Hashem is here. The Uncle Moishi song, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is everywhere. Everyone understands that. Einstein didn't. So even if you tell me he's a Tinoch Shanishpa, you're only in the world to come what you made yourself into. 
His understanding of Hashem's involvement in the world was so rudimentary, so primitive, that he doesn't make it to the level of a three-year-old. So even if you argue that he has a place in the world to come, it's way, way, way diminutive and very, very insignificant. So here's the question. How could there be such a huge discrepancy? The man of the century, the single greatest contributor to the entire century, and according to Chazal's understanding of life, it would seem that not only isn't he the biggest contributor, a no one, a nothing, maybe amongst Poshe Yisrael. And how could there be such a stark discrepancy between their version of it and our version? And I'd like to share with you the answer is based on one single issue. You see, from a guy's worldview, let's call it better yet a irreligious, secular person's worldview, God needs a lot of help. You know, I mean, listen, there are all types of things in this world, like diseases, man has to find cures for them. There are rivers that need to be forded. There are bridges that need to be built. Oceans have to be crossed. Industries have to be created. I mean, you know, God's okay. He did a decent job. But God's only good at things like, you know, elephants and giraffes, mountains and rivers. But, you know, the real hard things, you know, like rocket ships and satellites. I mean, God's just not that good. And man does for the world that which God just isn't good enough to do. And as strange as that sounds, that is basically the common thought. And if it's not expressed, it's the underlying current. God is good. God did a decent job. But he needs mankind to really do the hard, heavy lifting, the real tough stuff, leave up to man. And this mistake stems from one very simple error. I'll explain to you what that is. When Columbus set sail to find out whether the world is flat or not, he discovered America. When those three ships landed on the shores He discovered a continent. But Columbus did not invent the continent. He discovered the continent. And that is the mistake. On some level, as strange as it sounds, when scientists uncover things that people didn't know before, they're treated as if they invented it, as if Einstein invented the atom, as if the forces that hold those electron bonds in place were invented by him. Einstein uncovered that which was there for thousands of years, that which was created and put and kept into existence. And the strange part of it is that when you hear the words of Einstein, he had reverence. When he was a little boy, he was about five years old, and he was homesick. And his biographer writes that his father brought him a compass, and he began trembling Because at the tender age of five, he recognized that something was pulling that needle. Because no matter which way he moved it, it constantly pointed north. And he says that it behaved as if it was influenced by some hidden forces. But he didn't understand these hidden forces. And he began to understand from that moment on that there's far more going on underneath the surface than what we commonly understand. And when a scientist reveals that which is there, he's not the inventor of it. He merely uncovered that which was there already, 
much like Columbus discovered a continent, he didn't invent it. And this concept, I believe you'll find being mistaken over and over and over. Let me explain what I mean. The ancient Greeks were very curious. Why does heat rise? They made observations. Heat tends to rise. Why is it that if I put a rock on the top of a mountain, it will roll down? Why? Why is it that water, when you keep it very, very cold, turns brittle and hard? They began asking many, many questions. They were very, very curious. But they didn't really have answers. And for centuries, for millennium, man was in the dark. And because man didn't understand and couldn't make sense of it, he attributed it to God. Ancient man was very religious because when the crops failed, that's God. And when the crops succeeded, that's God. Ancient man didn't understand cellular division. Ancient man did not understand molecular theory. So when he planted a seed in the ground and up came a wheat stalk, that's God. When a cow gave birth to a baby, that's God. Over and over and over, ancient man saw God because there was so much behind the surface, so much underneath that he couldn't fathom, that he couldn't begin to even imagine and understand that he said the words, that's God, and ancient man was a very, very religious being. As understanding evolved and as a scientific method began being used, mankind's reality changed. No longer did man have to attribute crops' failure to God. They began understanding that it's blight, it's pestilence, it's a disease. No longer did man have to attribute people dying young to just it's the hand of God. But man began discovering that there were causes. And what the scientific method brought to mankind was the concept of causality, mechanisms, <clears throat> causes, <clears throat> through empirical evidence, through study, through very, very careful observation, man began uncovering the mechanisms, the systems via which the world works. Man discovered gravity. Man discovered why it is that heat tends to rise, why it is that heavy objects tend to fall. And as man got more and more advanced, he began understanding more and more of the principles underlying, more and more of the causations, and then mankind made his mistake. Mankind said, I got it. There's a mechanism. There's gravity. There are laws of physics. We don't need God. And the mistake that they made is so fundamentally foolish that it's hard to explain. It would be akin to the following. When a magician takes the stage, you and I both know that he's not a magician. It's slate of hand. It's optical illusion. He doesn't really pull the rabbit out of his hat. He makes it appear that way. Smoke and mirrors, he fools the eye. And when you and I discover the trick, ah, I got it, that's how the magician did it. Guess what? We've discovered the magician's trick. And in that sense, at that point, we no longer need the magician. We've now discovered his trick. Mankind treated God as if, ah, we found your trick. I got it. It's simple mechanisms. It's simple biology. And therefore, we don't need God anymore because there's a mechanism behind it. 
But the folly of that is difficult to explain. The Ramban says that Teva, nature, is merely Hashem. The fact that there are consistent, constant activities that happen in a given way are because Hashem created those laws and maintains them. And the fact that gases tend to expand, the fact that light tends to travel, that's because Hashem created those laws, created the material, and keeps everything in existence moving in those ways. Three states, solid, liquid, and gas, is because Hashem says it should be that way, and Hashem maintains it that way. And when you watch a tree grow, you're watching God. Because molecular division is Hashem's involvement in the world, keeping every particle of physicality in existence, keeping the laws of nature as they should be, keeping the world with chiyos, with existence, with energy. And when you're watching Teva, you're watching consistent, constant miracles. Modern man did not replace God. You now found the system via which God runs the world. When Hashem created the world, He created it with certain laws of nature. Throughout this wide universe, those laws apply. But those laws don't replace Hashem. They explain to you the way via which Hashem runs the world in every part of the world. And Hashem keeps those laws in existence constantly, most of the time. On very rare occasions, Hashem will bend those laws. On very rare occasions, Hashem will change them. But even the miracles that we experience don't obviate Teva. Typically, they work well within nature. Very rare indeed that Hashem violates them. But when you discover them, you've discovered Hashem. Achsam Sofa tells us that when Yeshua took the Klai into Eretz Yisrael, He said to him, Now I'm going to show you miracles. Now I'm going to show you miracles that you can't even imagine that you've never seen before. Yeshua took a seed, <clears throat> put it in the ground, watered it, and said, come back tomorrow. And came back the next day, <clears throat> and the next day, and the next day, and suddenly something began sprouting. First a little green shoot, and then it grew a little more, then it grew leaves, and then the leaves started growing and expanding and expanding. <clears throat> and explains the Chsam Sofa, this was a miracle that caused them to say, Hashem Hu Elokim. Why? Because that generation that came into Eretz Yisrael, had been born in the Midbar. Anyone who was over 20 years of age died in the Midbar. The bulk of the generation who actually entered Eretz Yisrael after the 40 years were born in the Midbar. What did you eat in the Midbar? In the Midbar, you ate Mon. Mon fell from Shemayim, exactly where it was supposed to be, perfectly assimilated food, but they had never seen agriculture. They had never experienced a seed being put into the ground. And when Yeshua showed them this, there was an astonishment. There was a wonder in their eyes because they saw the miracle called nature right up front and personal and it hadn't lost its wonder in their eyes. And the reality is that when you look at an acorn, small little acorn, and you know that from this acorn will come a gigantic oak tree. A huge oak tree will come out weighing thousands and thousands of pounds. When you watch wheat and potatoes and cucumbers and tomatoes, and they all start from tiny little seeds, and you watch the process, our food growing on trees, our food growing in the ground away from anyone's sight, and miraculously out pop 
tomatoes and cucumbers, <clears throat> watermelon, potatoes, <clears throat> each with the right flavor, <clears throat> each with the right balance of carbohydrates, each <clears throat> knowing which part to be the skin, <clears throat> which part to be the edible part. When you look at that, what you're supposed to see is constant, consistent miracles. And you're supposed to see Hashem. When you discover the system via which Hashem runs the world, and you haven't obviated the need for God, you've now found the system via which Hashem runs the world. And all of nature, all of Teva, is Hashem being involved in the world. And yet, when man uses a system, he's credited as if he did it. When a couple decide to have a baby, it's considered, they're credited with creating a life. They do not understand the biology. They don't understand how to wave, weave the neurons in the brain. They don't understand how to stretch the skin over the face. But when you use the system that Hashem created, it's like you flick the switch, and the lights go on, the machinery begins moving, the flywheels and gears go into operation, and you're credited with bringing that about. And when a farmer grows a fine field of corn, he's credited with the one for doing it. Of course, it's Hashem's world. Of course, Hashem created the corn. Of course, Hashem is the one who makes sure that the corn begins forming and the outer skin becomes the outer skin and everything in the process remains. But man is credited with having done it. And I believe that's exactly the mistake that Time magazine makes. You see... They look at Einstein and they say, wow, look what he did. Look what he did. If you'd like to know what Einstein did, he did nothing. At certain times, certain ages, Hashem wishes a certain understanding to be revealed, and Hashem reveals a small, tiny fragment of the wisdom by which he created and maintains the world. When Einstein uncovered the special theory of relativity, he uncovered that which Hashem created in the six days of my Sabratius. Einstein did not invent it. But not only did he not invent it, all he did was uncover the system by which Hashem created the world and continues to maintain the world. What did he do in a very real sense? Absolutely nothing. Yet, from a secular vantage point, oh my goodness, look what he did. Everything we have, all of scientific theory now, is based on this man's contribution. If not for him, we would be bereft. We'd be back in the darkness. What Einstein did was uncover but a tiny little sliver of the wisdom by which Hashem created and runs the world. Hashem is the creator. Hashem is the maintainer. And Hashem is the one who orchestrates every one of those tiny little divisions, all of the electrons spinning around, keeping all of the systems by which Hashem created and runs the world. And so you're looking at Hashem. And from our vantage point, what Einstein did was, he was the man on the scene. Hashem allowed him to understand a small little bit of that which Hashem created and uses to maintain the world. And this vantage point is a very, very critical understanding. Because if you don't understand the world right, man is very significant and man is very important, and look what he does, all the hard jobs that God clearly couldn't get right, Baruch Hashem, we got man to do. But if you understand the world with a little bit more 
depth, <clears throat> a little bit more understanding, <clears throat> you recognize that man is but a small, little, insignificant cog. It's a Shem's world. <clears throat> it's a world that he created, <clears throat> the world that he runs, and everything that mankind has revealed is but a sliver of a tiny piece of the wisdom that Hashem continues to run the world with. With that being said, <clears throat> one more observation. You and I were once fully supported. Every baby begins in the womb of its mother, and all of its needs are taken care of. All of its needs for food, all of its needs for sustenance, fully prepared for the baby are all of its needs. If you look at an egg, a chicken egg also, all of the needs for the baby chick to hatch are taken care of. The yolk is effectively its food. The album, the white outer liquid, is some liquid protein, but mostly padding. But within that egg shell, if it's fertilized, the ovum will begin forming, and a chick will begin eating the yolk, eating the yolk growing. But the point is that within that egg shell are all of the needs for that potential chick, all of its sustenance is provided. And in a very real sense, that is our relationship to our Creator. We have this attitude, listen, i got to earn a living. If I don't do it, it's not going to happen. And we fail to understand Hashem's relationship to man. The Chavaz of explains that if it could be, Hashem feels a huge obligation to take care of mankind's needs. I created you. I have to take, take care of you. Almost like if I would invite you to my house. I, as a mortal, invite another person to my house. <clears throat> if I invite you into my house, of course, I have to take care of your needs. I have to, <clears throat> I'm your host. Hashem, if it could be, is the creator. And as the creator, <clears throat> Hashem feels if it could be this sense of having to take care of the needs of the ones He created. If not, it would be a chasarun, it would be a lack <clears throat> in the goodness, the kindliness of the creator. And Hashem prepares for each individual all of the sustenance that they will ever need before they're born. Hazan esa olam kulo, we say in benching all the time, Hashem is the one who feeds all of humanity, all of the wild kingdom, everything in existence. If it could be, Hashem feels an obligation to take care of, and Hashem is not just the creator, Hashem is the sustainer, and Hashem is the one who gives michia, who gives life, and who gives sustenance, who takes care of food. What does man do? Man has to earn a living. Man has to go through the motions. Man has to do what he's supposed to because Hashem created the world with certain laws and Hashem wants the world to go in a certain way. Hashem wants heat to rise. Hashem wants gases to expand. And Hashem wants man to work for his living. But not because Hashem can't do it himself, not because God is good, you know, at the elephants and the giraffe kind of stuff, but really when it comes to important stuff like market economies, it's just beyond Hashem's ability. <clears throat> Quite the opposite. Hashem created man, and Hashem created needs in that man, and Hashem created all of the fillings for those needs before that man was born. And we make three mistakes when it comes to earning a living. There are three common mistakes that man makes the first one, the most obvious, is that Hashem needs me. Listen, tikkun olam, to fix up the world, you know, because again, it's a, 
you know, it's, it's an imperfect world. And that one, hopefully most of us are well beyond, and we recognize that, that Hashem doesn't need us, and Hashem could provide for all of the orphans and widows, and Hashem could fix up this world very, very well without us. Hashem affords the poor man the opportunity to be tested, and Hashem affords the rich man the opportunity to be tested as well. There Hashem explains, we're here in this world to grow. But how do you grow? You grow by being challenged. Will I be merciful? Will I be cruel? Will I be kindly? Will I be generous? Will I be stingy? Will I be arrogant? Will I be humble? All of the midos, if you lay them out, I'm tested. But here's the problem. If you create everyone wealthy, how do you test people? Explains the Darach Hashem, and for that reason, Hashem created wealthy men, and Hashem created poor men. Poor men. The poor man is tested. <clears throat> will you still, despite the fact that things are rough, <clears throat> will you be mistopic more? Will you be satisfied with your little bit? <clears throat> will you recognize that even your little bit is directed from Hashem? <clears throat> will you still turn your eyes to Hashem and understand that He's the one who runs the world? And the rich man, you're also tested. Will you take care of the needs of the poor man? Will you have mercy? And if you do, you're credited with having given him life. If you didn't give him that money, if you didn't give him that food, Hashem would have provided for him many, many messengers, many other sources. But if you do, not only did you vanquish your inner nature, not only did you act in a merciful, kind manner, but you're credited with it as if you gave him sustenance, as if Hashem wasn't good enough to do it. And in the system of credits, it's considered like you gave him his life and you're considered a great man for what you accomplished. And Hashem created the world and runs this world that way to allow people to be tested, allow people to grow, allow people to have opportunities to use the world properly. So the first mistake that maybe Hashem needs us is pretty foolish, and again, most of us are well beyond that. But there's a second mistake that many people make, and this one probably applies to, to us in a very real way, and that's what I call appeasing the gods. Ancient man was very good at this. You know, you did various things to appease the gods. For instance, you would sacrifice the blood of prisoners of war to appease God. You know, God want God to be on our side. So you do various things. Sacrifices and all types of libations and all kinds of things. And if you say to me, well, that was ancient man, we're far more sophisticated, I'd like to share with you that we see this kind of behavior on a regular basis. You ever see a guy who isn't so honest in business? As a matter of fact, he's a liar, a thief. He's incredibly dishonest, but he gives a lot of tzedakah. And there's a sort of rationale. Listen, I'll give my sir, so therefore I can do what I want. You know what I mean? Like, I take care of tzedakah organizations, yeshivas and orphanages, my shul, and stucker campaigns. I am a major contributor. So Hashem will let me slide. You know what I'm saying? Because, like, you know, I appease Hashem by giving... 10%, 20%, to tzedakah. So therefore Hashem will let me slide with my little uh, shenanigans and, and, and it's okay. <clears throat> well, I'd like to share with you that not only doesn't appease the gods, Hashem doesn't need your tzedakah. Hashem doesn't need your help. Hashem doesn't need your charity. Hashem allowed you the opportunity to grow, <clears throat> put you in this world in a situation that it looks very, very much like it's your hand. 
and it's not at all your hand. It looks like you're the one who determines the outcome, but you're online at the ticket booth. It could be this booth or that booth, that booth or this booth, and either way you would have gotten the exact amount. No, but look at my clever lying, stealing, and cheating. That brought me it. If you lie, steal, and cheat, you don't make a penny more than that which was decreed on the previous Rosh Hashanah. It's not like Hashem says, okay, this year you're going to make $200,000. Oh, you lied, steal, and cheat. I gotta, let me open up the bank now. We've got to add, add more money to it. The exact amount of money you ought to make this year is set. If you're honest, then you went to ticket booth number 13. If you decide to be dishonest, and you went to ticket booth number 18 or 20, or whatever it is, well, guess what? You will make exactly the same amount of money that you were supposed to make. But there's only one difference. Not just that you lied, <coughs> stole, cheated, but you wasted the entire reason why you had to work. Hashem doesn't need you to earn a living. Hashem <coughs> is good enough to figure out somehow how to even create food on the vine ready for you to eat. Hashem created you with many, many needs, <coughs> lacking many things, so that you should have the opportunity to use life properly. So you should be able to cut through this veil of darkness and recognize that it's Hashem behind the scenes. So you should have to call out to Hashem, Hashem, I can't do it. So you should recognize the fact that Hashem is the creator. You should recognize the fact that I'm dependent upon Hashem. And that you should call out to Hashem and say the words, You are my creator, upon you I rely. The Ramban explains that the purpose, the focal point of all mitzvahs, is Le'ada Es Hashem, to know Hashem. And when you daven, and you say to Hashem, I have a lot of, a lot of serious bills, <clears throat> I have a mortgage, tuition payments, <clears throat> I really don't know how I'm going to make them, Hashem, please help. And somehow it works out, you're beginning to see Hashem, <clears throat> you're beginning to know Hashem, and the Chovos of Ovas explains that the primary reason why we have to work is so that we can grow, that this world is the laboratory, the laboratory of Imuna. We're put into the obstacle course, into the great proving ground of Imuna, and we're given many, many things as opportunities, and there are many things lacking. And we have to go about this world in a particular way. And we have to act in a very specific manner, and if we do, we're credited with it. We're credited with it. if we did it, as if we accomplished it, it would have happened anyway. But we're given the opportunity to change, to grow. I'm given the opportunity to learn to be merciful, to learn to be kindly. I'm given the opportunity to reach out to Hashem and recognize that I don't do it. Hashem is in charge. I'm given the opportunity to be tested. And not just in my honesty, but in my basic emuna. Do I see Hashem behind the scenes, or do I lose perspective. And the second mistake that people make is, again, that we think that if we give stucco, we give misa, we're good people, so we could do what we want because it appeases the gods. But there's a third mistake. <clears throat> and the third mistake sounds innocuous, sounds like it's not particularly dangerous, but it actually underlies something very, very critical. People have this attitude that if you do good by Hashem, Hashem will do good by you. If you're honest in business, so Hashem will reward you with a good parnasa. <clears throat> if you do what you're supposed to, Hashem will take care of you. Let me give you a good example. There was a man <clears throat> in Baltimore who 
went to contract on his house. He had difficulty selling his house. And he finally found a buyer. The buyer wasn't Jewish. And they wrote up the contract, and uh, everything was good to go. And they were, they, a day or two before the closing, the man realized that he failed to tell the buyer that there had been water in the basement, there had been flooding before, and it could possibly happen again. And he realized that it really isn't right. I should have told him, and he felt very guilty that he didn't. So he called up Rav Heinemann and asked Ashila, what do I do? If I tell the buyer that there has been water in the basement, I'll probably lose the sale, and I'll be really stuck because it's not a good market. I had a rough time getting anyone to buy, and I'll probably be stuck with the house for a long time, and I'm going to be in serious financial trouble. <clears throat> what do I do? So Heinemann told him as follows. You have to tell him because it's not honest, it's not ethical. But you don't have to tell him early. <clears throat> what you could do is you wait till the closing, and at the closing tell him, I just want to mention, I forgot to say earlier, but I had had flooding in the basement, there had been water, and you leave it there. Whatever will happen, will happen. Kachava, the man shows up at the closing, and he says to the buyer before they sign the papers, I just want to tell you, I didn't, I neglected to tell you earlier, there had been flooding in the basement, there was water, at which point the buyer panicked. Oh my goodness, it's obvious I'm not buying this house. It's the most foolish move I could ever do. But just to make sure, the buyer called his lawyer, because, you know, listen, I want to be sure. So he called his lawyer, and his lawyer said, listen to me, close immediately, close right now. The buyer said, why close right now? The lawyer said, don't you understand? Why would he tell you that? Why would he be so honest? Obviously, he got a better offer. He got a much higher offer. He's trying to get out of it. Close immediately, at which point the buyer came right back to the table, signed on the documents, and the house was sold. Now, that's a nice story, and it's clearly ethical, honest, Kiddush Hashem. And people have added to listen. <clears throat> Obviously, he was rewarded. Because he was honest, Hashem rewarded him. Now, it may be true that Hashem allowed the sale to go through, and it may be true that it's a mitzvah, and it might even be true that Hashem allowed it to happen because of the, the merit of him making Kiddush Hashem and being honest. But you're missing the point. The reason why I have to be honest and ethical in business is not so that Hashem will provide me with a pranasa. The reason I have to be ethical and honest in business is because it's the whole reason why Hashem wants me to work. Hashem doesn't need my help. Hashem can create entire worlds with food ready. Hashem doesn't need man to discover America. Hashem doesn't need man to discover the atom. Hashem invented it. Hashem created it. Hashem maintains it. And Hashem put us in this world to give us the opportunity to cut through the darkness, to see through this veil that we call nature and recognize that it's Hashem. And the reason we work is because this is the laboratory of Amuna. And there's no way that you can grow, no way that you can reach the greatness for which you were created unless you're in the thick and thin of things. And if you'd like to understand the answer to Yaakov Avinu, I believe that's exactly it. Yaakov Avinu became the Ish Emes. He became a towering giant because he was in the fields working. Because he was working for a Ramai, for a devious, deceitful person. And despite the fact that this father-in-law of his, tried to fool him a hundred times, Yaakov Avinu was impeccably honest. And what he was saying with that was, my morality is not dictated by you. I answer to a higher authority. And what Yaakov Avinu was doing was growing even on his level in more emuna, more understanding. He was training himself in honesty, training himself in doing that which a person should do.
And as great as Yaakov Vinu was before those 20 years of working, he was a much greater person, and it's that labor that stood him in good stead. Not because Hashem needs a beast of burden, not because he lifted rocks or moved objects, but because he did it be'emunah. The first question they ask you isn't, did you work? It's not, did you provide for your family? They don't even ask you, did you deal in business honestly? Did you deal in business with emuna? Did you get it? Did you understand it? Were you growing through those events? Were you being tested and reaching level after level after level? Because if you use this work environment properly, if you use this laboratory of growth as you're supposed to, you become a vastly different person. You become great. Everything becomes clear. You become an Ebed Hashem. And that's what Yaakov Avinu did. And I'd like to share with you how profound this is. Yaakov Avinu, when he entered Lovin's house, was not a simple man. He wasn't a common shepherd. From the time Yaakov Avinu was a tiny young lad, he was Yoshev Oalim. His Rebbe was his father, Yitzhak. His mentor, besides his father, was his grandfather, Avram. And from a tender young age, all that Yaakov Avinu did was sit and learn, shnaig, level after level. He was a Yoshev Olim. While Esau was out running, hunting and doing whatever he was doing, Yaakov was in the Ohel sitting. And at 63 years of age, he runs away because Esau wants to kill him. And where does he run to? Chazal tell us he runs to the yeshiva of Shem Ve'ever. The son of Noah was still alive, and there was a yeshiva. Yaakov entered that yeshiva, and for 14 years he learned. But if you'd like to know what real hasmada means, after those 14 years he gathers together the rocks, puts them around his head, and he lies down to sleep. Says Rashi on that Pusik, that was the first time he actually slept a night's sleep. Because in the 14 years that he was learning in Yeshim Ve'ever, he didn't lie down in a bed at night. I guess maybe he caught <clears throat> catnaps here and there, maybe something like the Gra, <clears throat> who used to sleep a half hour every four hours or so. But the idea of lying down in a bed for a whole night's sleep wasn't part of those 14 years. For 14 years, he stayed and grew <clears throat> level after level, and he left at 77 years of age. Could you imagine a great tzaddik? <clears throat> Could you imagine a man who's more dovik to Hashem? So here's the question. Why in the world would Hashem want this man to waste his time to sleep in the fields with the sheep, to eat, as he describes, ice at night, keep himself up late hours to make sure that no wolves steal a single sheep? Why in the world would Hashem want him to waste his time that way? And the answer is that Hashem didn't want him to waste his time. <laughs> Quite the opposite. That's how he became the Ish Emes. <clears throat> By making sure that I'm incredibly honest. I have an obligation to my boss. My obligation to my boss is to take care of my responsibility in the best manner possible. And not one single sheep in all of the years that Yaakov worked for Lovin was brought back dead. Not one <clears throat> sheep was attacked. <clears throat> not one sheep was ripped apart because Yaakov worked with incredible diligence, <clears throat> incredible integrity, because he felt an obligation to his boss, this is my job, this is what I have to do, I'm a man of honesty, of integrity. But the value of his labor wasn't the fact that he produced many, many sheep, not that he created flocks of sheep, the value of his work was how he did it, the way he did it, 
his honesty, his integrity, his emuna, his seeing through that it's only Hashem. And that was such a growth opportunity. And that was such a change in this man that as great as he was at 77, he was far greater. And when Lovan came to attack him, Yigiyah Kapov, the handwork, his hand labor, that's what saved him. And again, it was not the digging ditches, but the Nasav and Nasav Emuna acting with real, real understanding, working with real Emuna. That is so great, and that is worth even more, apparently, than Yerushalayim, even than Schosavos. And I think for us, the Chiddush is very, very large. And that is our overall attitude when we go to work. Nebuchadnezzar. I leave the base medish. Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, I mean, like if Hashem were better at the thing called running the world, I'm sure Hashem would have worked it out that I'd have parnasa without having to go to work. But Nebuch, Hashem isn't so good. Or even if Hashem is good, I, I can't figure out why this happened. But Nebuch, this is a terrible situation. This is bad. Hi, if only it didn't have to be. Now let's make sure that this point is clear. Obviously, I'm in this world to grow and accomplish. And learning is a huge, huge part of my serving Hashem and is a tremendous catalyst for change. But Hashem is quite capable of supporting everyone in the world in Kolo, and Hashem is quite capable of not needing mankind to work. Yet it's also clear that Hashem wants us to work. And the reason is very clear. The Imos became who the Imos were because they were lacking they were barren, every one of them, not just they couldn't have children, they didn't have the, the <clears throat> necessary organs to have children, because Hashem is mis'avilatilosan shosadikim, Hashem waits, Hashem hungers for the sadikim, why? Because via that process they change. <clears throat> and as great as Sarimena was at 20, <clears throat> she was far greater at 90, but it took those years and years of begging, beseeching, imploring Hashem, please, and when we go into the workplace, <clears throat> we have to look at it as one other mitzvah of the many mitzvahs that we do, and maybe one of the biggest. It's not lulav, it's not shofar, it's not putting on tzitzit, it's serving Hashem with everything that I have, <clears throat> and I'm put into the great laboratory, <clears throat> the great laboratory of Amuna. <clears throat> I'm placed out there in the world, and that's the time when I have to really put my beliefs into practice. You can't learn to box from a book. You can't learn bitachon in the base medrash. <clears throat> you can learn the principles, you can learn the concepts, but you don't have real trust in Hashem until you're out there in the thick and thin of life, until you're being tested, <clears throat> until you have to earn a living, until you have a sick child, until you have to answer. And that's when you turn to Hashem with reality, <clears throat> with a real understanding, Hashem, I get it. You're the creator, maintainer of this world. Hashem, upon you I rely. And if you didn't have this opportunity called work, you would never become the great person that you could be. And as much as learning and mitzvahs and other things are obviously huge and they may be very enjoyable, we have to at a certain point say, I get it. Hashem knows a little bit better than I what it is that I need to reach my level of perfection. And the point is that when you go out into the workplace, it should be with joy, it should be with simcha, because I'm serving my creator. 
as I eat matzah on the 15th of Nisan with tremendous kavana, I go out into the workforce knowing that I'm serving Hashem. This is what Hashem wants me to do. And it's not drat and nebuch and eh. What can, what can you do? If Hashem was better, it wouldn't have to be this way. It's Baruch Hashem. Does that mean you should work 12, 14 hours a day? Certainly not. If you become a beast of burden, well, guess what? That's also not Nasa Vanasa But recognizing the role of working, recognizing the role of being in this laboratory called growth, allows us to understand its place, allows us to understand its role. And now the question, I guess, that should be asked is, is kolel for life permitted? According to this, if all the others, all the marim, the tanaim, seem to have worked, so is this concept called kolel for life? Is, are you even allowed to do this? It should sound like it's forbidden. The Rambam in Hilchah of Yovel, Perak Gimel, says that it is 100% permitted. Explains the Rambam, Shevet Levi was not supposed to work. Shevet Levi had no nachla in Yisrael. They owned no land. The rest of the clients were supposed to support Shevet Levi because the role of Shevet Levi was to be the ones who taught Torah, the ones who worked in the base of Mikdash. They were to be the holy Jews who were supported by their brothers so that they could dedicate themselves to Avodah Hashem. And explains the Rambam that it's not just Shevet Levi. Explains the Rambam that any person called Ish V'ish Mikol Bayolam from any walk of life who feels an awakening in his spirit and he feels that he should be serving Hashem and he wants to go in the Derech HaYosher, he is able to separate himself and rely on the fact that Hashem will provide for him. But let's listen very carefully to what the Rambam says. Assuming that he is that man, that he could separate himself from the <clears throat> busyness of this world, that he could separate himself from all of the cheshbonos and needs and desires of worldly activity. Then he says, <clears throat> Something that's sufficient for his needs. And I remember very clearly, <clears throat> my Rebbe, the Shiva Zetzal, many a time would say, <clears throat> it's just what you need. I went to Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim. Eighty percent of the guys, maybe more, went into Chinuch, whether it be Rabbanus, Rosh Hashivas, Shul Rabbanim. They went into Klei Kodesh. And I remember the first time when I heard in a Shkava discussion someone asking the Rosh so why is it that Mechanchim generally don't seem to get much money? Why is it they don't seem to earn the same keep? Because after all, it's this Ishtablis or that Ishtablis, what difference does it make? And Rosh said these words, it's a terrible ishtadlis. It's a bad ishtadlis. <clears throat> Meaning to say, if you decide that you are selected, you're among Shevet Levi, <clears throat> and you want to sit and learn for the rest of your life, or you want to go into some form of <clears throat> that won't really earn a, a normal living, <clears throat> Hashem will provide for you, but just enough. It doesn't mean you get to be a regular balabas. <clears throat> it doesn't mean you get to live in a regular house, doesn't mean you get to drive the car like everyone else has, just barely sufficient. And there is a filtering mechanism, <clears throat> I believe, and this, I, again, I heard from the Shiva Zetzal, <clears throat> that oftentimes you'll find that Hashem sort of uses it as a filtering mechanism, because not everyone, 
In fact, the vast majority of people are not supposed to be in kolo for life. And oftentimes, it's that inability to live with poverty or to live very, very simply or to live well below everyone else that becomes the filtering mechanism that makes sure the people who stay are supposed to be there. And the Bir HaLacha brings this down in Simon Kufnan Vav. Look in the Bir HaLacha when he says these words. In every generation, Anoshim Yechidim, there are some Yechidim, some single people, Yuchol Lahamsi Bechol Eisbof, and can find their Parnassah in this way. But explains the Bir HaLacha, it's few and it's Yechidim. It's not the Rabbim, it's not the majority, a few select people, and in every generation there were a few select people who didn't work. For the record, the Chavetz Chaim did. His wife had a store. He later sold Svarim. But <clears throat> there are, in every generation, a few select who don't work, <clears throat> and they're in the category of Shevet Levi, and Hashem provides for them. <clears throat> Number one, it's just providing. It doesn't mean you have a right to assume you'll have a regular Parnasa. And number two, <clears throat> it has to be the right person, and it's rare <clears throat> the man who really fits that situation. And it's not to say that if you're a young man and your father-in-law supports you, you shouldn't learn kolo. You should learn as long as you can. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But the idea that everyone has the right to assume kolo for life is not based, is not supported, but more than that, it fundamentally misses the reason why Hashem wants us to work. It's not because Hashem is not good enough to run market economies sufficiently to generate enough income to support all the kolo. It's because the average person needs to be in the workforce. There are few Yechidim who through their Limerat Torah, through their Avodah Hashem, can get everything they need of the laboratory of growth and yet remain in the four walls of the base Medrash. But those are very few, and of those, not everyone can withstand the Nisayan. For the vast majority of us, we have to be out there in the thick and thin of things, struggling to earn a living and learning to cut through this veil, learning to understand that it's all Hashem. In this series, we dealt with a lot of fundamentals. <clears throat> the first concept is what they ask us when we leave this world. Nasata, <clears throat> nasata be'emuna. It's in a growth in emuna. <clears throat> it's an emuna challenge. It's being able to really see Hashem. Noah was a mamin ve'enu mamin. Even though he was a novi, even though he was 600 years old, he didn't fully, fully believe <clears throat> and didn't walk into the table until the water forced him in. Because Emunah is not an on and off switch. I'm a Yankee fan. I believe in Hashem. <clears throat> Emunah is a growth process. I'm in this Nefesh HaBahami. The I am put into a great battle between different forces. And I'm ever in that state of being half drunk and half awake. And by going through the steps, <clears throat> going through this thing called life, I hopefully <clears throat> wake up, become more sober, see Hashem more clearly, but it requires, that growth in Amunah requires real situations. <clears throat> Hashem created man with many, many needs. Borei nefoshos rabos vechesronon and their shortcomings. The moles were barren. The avos were barren. So that they'll reach out. Because when you have a need, <clears throat> and you really, really need, you have to call out to Hashem with earnestness, with honesty, <clears throat> and you begin getting it. Hashem doesn't need help. Hashem, if it could be, feels an obligation to support every cre- creation, because Hashem is the bore. <clears throat> the one who gives life gives mizonos, because that's part of the nature of a mitiv, of a giver. Hashem is the ultimate benefactor. Hashem created us only to give, 
And it would almost be a chesorin if it could be in Hashem, if he wouldn't take care of our needs. I created you and left you to, to die in hunger. And for the record, not a Jew in the course of history ever died of hunger. Not one. Not a single one. And even if you tell me the Chorban bias, and the Gemara describes people dying out of starvation, no one died because they didn't have food. There are decrees on Rosh Hashanah. And some people are decreed to life, some people are decreed otherwise, and the exact way that you're going to leave this world is exactly set. No one died because they didn't have enough food. They died because Hashem decreed, you shall die of starvation because that's what's proper and appropriate in this situation. But Hashem feeds all human beings, and unless for some reason it's either a shasa din or there's some unusual thing, very, very rare that you've done, you have every right to assume that Hashem will take care of me as He takes care of the baboons in Africa, as He takes care of the elephants, as He takes care of all of the world, because Hashem is the giver. And my role, nevertheless, is to go out there, to go out there and recognize that I have to work very, very diligently. When you're looking at me, it's got to look like I'm earning my keep. It's the last scene of the play and the actors are fighting. And it looks like he's punching, he's kicking. And then you go behind the stage and you see them laughing. How are you guys laughing? (laughs) We were fighting 10 minutes ago. It was a choreographed fight scene. When I'm in this world, you have to look at me. I have to look at me. And it has to look very real like it's kochi v'yotzmiyodi. And all the while I have to know it has nothing to do with me. Hashem wants me to use this world. Hashem wants me to act in the derech ha And that defines how it is that I should act. There's a shkacha klolius for the entire world. Hashem puts various forces, whether it be a sar, whether it be a malach that's in charge. And for the Jewish nation, there's a shkacha pratis. Hashem himself is directly involved in our pranasa. We do what we're supposed to, and Hashem takes care of us. But it's not a reward for my being honest and ethical, or working properly, or giving tzedakah. Is it true that if you give ma'isa, you'll get more back? 100% chazal tell us it. But when I give ma'isa, it's not because, oh, I'm going to get rich by it. When I give ma'isa, it's like Baruch Hashem. I could take this thing called work and convert it into something meaningful. And would you like to know what the biggest tragedy of materialism is? It's when you take your hard labor and you trash it. No matter what you do for a living, I guarantee you work very hard for your money. And if it's a dollar or a million dollars and you trash it on the $40,000 worth of flowers or the fancy vort or whatever it would be, what you did was you took your hard work and you trashed it. You just threw it out. Hashem doesn't need you to work. He gave you this opportunity to work. And if you convert some of that labor into money, and that money is extra, you can now accomplish worlds with that money. And you can change people's lives, and you can take poor people and give them michia, be considered the one who sustained them. You could give sustenance to yeshiva, to an orphanage, to a hospital, and be counted, be considered as if you are the one who built that dynasty. If you create a yeshiva, you fund it, and you're the one behind it. In Shemayim, it's considered as if you made it, you did it, and you are the one who's credited with everything that happens. And the opportunity to give stuck is a huge, huge opportunity for me to take something that I worked very hard at and convert it into eternal reward, into schusim that lasts forever. Hashem wants us to be happy, 
And Hashem gave each person a teva how to earn their living. Some people love numbers, some people are natural businessmen. You're supposed to go out there in the workforce with joy in your heart and pursuing that which suits you, that which you enjoy. And you're supposed to recognize that this is what Hashem wants. And when I leave the base medrash, it's with tremendous joy in the right time, in the right way. And we'd all be there if it weren't some, for some foolish cultural beliefs that we get caught up in. The first of the foolish beliefs is that more money equals more happiness. Oh, if only I had more money. If only I could earn fortunes of money, wow, I'd be so happy. And if you study life, you quickly see that more money is not more happiness. Second cultural belief is more, more money is more importance. My self-worth equals my net worth. And you quickly understand that Hashem doesn't need your money. Hashem created the entire world for one human being for us to get it. And the big spender is not a rich man. He's a man who's eating himself out. He's creating a huge ditch for himself. And more than anything, understanding that this is a very, very powerful, very real-looking mirage that we call life. It's a virtual reality roller coaster. You're going through it, and it looks so real. But it's a mirage, and it doesn't matter. Hashem is there. Hashem is with me. The essence of Bitochen is one concept, trusting in Hashem. Trusting in the decree, embracing the decree, recognizing that I don't really know what's best for me. Trusting that Hashem has a better understanding of my needs than I do. Understanding that Hashem loves me. Understanding that Hashem is concerned for my good. When a person has bitachan, there's a menuchas and nefesh, there's shalva, there's happiness, there's joy. It's a totally different existence. I'd like to close the series with one story. And I think this story well defines much of these concepts. The Siddiqui Rebbe was living in Vienna in 1938 when the Germans stormed into Vienna. And one of the first things that they did was they took the Jews out for some entertainment. And they brought the Jews into the central square, and they recognized that here was the Rebbe. So they gave them all toothbrushes, small brushes, and had them scrub the streets. Jews, do something useful. Clean up. And the Nazi guards stood there with their guns ready while they forced all the Jews to be on their hands and knees scrubbing. And Siddiqui Rebbe held such a toothbrush and was scrubbing, and someone next to him noticed that he was smiling, and he was happy. And when this whole event was over, this man came over to the Rebbe and said, I don't understand. It seemed to me that the Rebbe was happy. How is it shared that, that the Rebbe was happy doing this? Said this like, Rebbe to this person, don't you understand? They think I'm washing their world. I'm washing Hashem's world. And that understanding that this is Hashem's world and that everything in front of me is a mirage in a sense that Hashem is there, Hashem is orchestrating it, and Hashem brings these puppets and he looks so powerful, oh, powerful Nazi, Ahmadinejad, he's so frightening. They are but puppets. Can I ignore them? Uh Uh-uh. If I ignore them, sometimes the puppeteer will have that puppet kick me. But I have to recognize that the puppet is not scary. The puppeteer, the one who pulls the strings, is the one I have to fear. And there's a message coming to me, and I have to get the message. But when the Rebbe was on the streets, scrubbing the floor, he recognized this is Hashem's world. 
Hashem runs the world, and Hashem wants me to do this particular action at this particular time. And that's with an <clears throat> action that's mavuza, that's embarrassing. How much more so we have to enter into this thing called life, this ishtadlis, <clears throat> in whatever arena, with joy in our hearts, <clears throat> with real emunah, knowing that it's Hashem's world, knowing that this is the way Hashem wants me to act. <clears throat> I have to go with joy in my heart, knowing that all my needs are taken care of. Hashem <clears throat> is the mafarnes. I have to go out there, and I have to know that this is what Hashem wants. This is my mitzvah at the moment, and I have to do it with tremendous simcha.